Prevention of transboundary harm arising from hazardous activities is the topic of today's lecture. Prevention of harm to property, persons and environment is a matter of concern to the international community in the broader context of the various perils endangering earth and environment. It's more of specific concern in the context of conduct of hazardous activities which are considered essential for economic development of states and raising the standards of living of their people. The Chernobyl incident in the Bhopal gas tragedy highlighted the need for prevention as harm or damage occurred proved beyond repair and possible measures of restoration and available compensation. Prevention as a policy addresses procedures or duties regarded as obligations of conduct of states. These obligations become relevant at a stage prior to the situation where significant harm or damage might actually occur. Obligations of conduct do not require that even if they are aimed at, certain end results must be accomplished. In that sense, they are distinguished from obligations of result once harm or damage occurs, giving rise to issues concerning liability. Prevention is a preferred policy. Its implementation involved, involves balance between the sovereignty and freedom of states, freedom, uh, uh, excuse me, between the sovereignty and freedom states enjoy in engaging or authorizing activities considered beneficial to its population and the limits attached to such freedom in the interest of other states and the global environment. This context and balance is well emphasized by principle two of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, which basically reaffirmed principle 21 of the Stockholm Declaration. This was confirmed by the International Court of Justice in its advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons of 8 July 1996, according to which the existence of the general obligation of states to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control respect the environment of other states or of areas beyond national control is now part of the corpus of international law relating to the environment. We may refer to the following to substance, uh, following to substantiate it further if any substantiation is necessary at all. Long before the principle, Sikutero tuo elenium non ledas, literally speaking, use what is yours in in the way in a way that you don't harm what is another's form the basis for the decision of the arbitral tribunal in the trial smelter case between the United States of America and Canada. Ecuador files filed a complaint before the International Court of Justice in 2008 against Colombia using this principle as a basis seeking to prevent Colombia from causing significant harm to its population, property, and environment from engaging in aerial, by, through, by, through engagement of aerial spraying of toxic herbicide. The case is now pending for fine, filing of memorials. Of similar import is the dictum of the ICJ in the Carfew Channel case that every state had an obligation not to allow knowingly its territory to be used for acts contrary to the rights of other states. The issue of prevention, therefore, 
has rightly been stressed by the expert group on environmental law, the World Commission on Environment and Development, otherwise known as Brundtland Commission. It is also affirmed by the UN General Assembly, Resolution 2995 of 15th December 1972 on cooperation between states in the field of the environment. Prevention of transboundary harm to the environment, persons and property has been accepted as an important principle in many multilateral treaties concerning the protection of the environment. Nuclear accidents, space objects, international water courses, management of hazardous waste and prevention of marine pollution. It has also been accepted in several conventions concluded by the Economic Commission for Europe such as the 1979 Convention on Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution, the 1991 Convention on Environmental Impact Assessment in a Transboundary Context, the 1992 Convention on the Protection and Use of Transboundary Watercourses and International Lakes, and the 1992 Convention on the Transboundary Effects of Industrial Accidents. Through these and other measures, Europe is effectively attempting to integrate environmental protection into economic development. Moreover, a growing economy is actually seen as a necessary precondition for sustainability in that it creates the resources needed for ecological development, the restoration of environmental damage, and the prevention of future harm. Given the importance of the topic of prevention, the International Law Commission, since the beginning of its consideration of the topic of international liability for injurious consequences arising from acts not prohibited by international law, which was inscribed on its agenda since 1978, it gave due attention to the elaboration of the various principles necessary to give full effect to it. As the title of the broader topic suggests, the main focus initially was on liability for damage or more precisely responsibility for risk of harm or damage arising from lawful activities or activities, lawful acts or activities in any case not prohibited by international law. The orientation of the topic as well as its very title owed its origin to another topic of the, the Commission was considering on state responsibility for internationally wrongful acts. Wrongful acts are those that involve the breach of international obligations irrespective of their source. The Commission in 73 recognized that as part of delimiting the scope of that topic, the importance of a study of that other form of responsibility, which is the protection against the hazards associated with certain activities that are not prohibited by international law. It noted in this con connection that being obliged to accept the possible risks arising from the exercise of an activity, which is itself lawful, and being obliged to face the consequences, which are not necessarily limited to compensation of the breach of a legal obligation are two different matters. The International Law Commission took up the study of the topic of international liability in right earnest since 1978 when the first report was submitted by 
the special rapporteur, Quentin Quentin Baxter. He submitted in all five reports by 1984 before his death. Julio Barbosa of Argentina took over in 85 the task of the task of complete uh, task of proceeding with the topic as a special rapporteur and submitted in all about 12 reports by 1996 one report for each year of his service even though a set of draft articles and commentaries were prepared by a working group in 1996 to consolidate the work or the results so far achieved, the report on the topic remained provisional and could not be adopted by the Commission. Accordingly, the Commission established another working group in 1997 to review the matter and recommend future course of action. The working group recommended separation of the topic of prevention given the primacy and advanced nature of the development of the work on that aspect from liability. As for the difficulties attendant upon the exercise until 1996, it was noted that the scope and content of the topic remained unclear due to such factors as, a, as conceptual and theoretical difficulties, appropriateness of the title, and the relation of the subject to the topic of state responsibility. The Commission endorsed the separation of the two topics and appointed the present lecturer, P.S. Rao, I am from India, as the special rapporteur for the topic of prevention of transboundary harm arising from hazardous activities. From 1998 to 2001, three reports were submitted by me and the topic of prevention was completed in 2001 in second reading when the Commission adopted 19 draft articles with commentaries. It submitted these articles to the UN, the Law Commission, I mean, to the General Assembly with the recommendation that it may consider adopting them as a UN convention. The UN took note of the recommendation and is yet to take action on the same. The question whether the topic should focus mainly on harm or on the nature and status of activities in international law as quote-unquote lawful in direct contrast to quote-unquote wrongful acts or activities quote-unquote not prohibited in direct contrast to activities prohibited raised considerable debate and distraction. We have seen the later categorization arose as a result of the need to distinguish the broad topic of international liability from the topic of state responsibility. But in a larger sense, that characterization allowed room for certain activities like nuclear testing, which were conducted on the high seas or in the atmosphere to be treated by some as permissible acts in the absence of any express prohibition in international law. As such, Issues concerning damage and compensation at best could be treated as matters of liability rather than as responsibility. In fact, compensations were paid to affected persons ex gratia without ever admitting any liability. This kind of views draws some support from observation of the Permanent Court of International Justice in the Lotus case, which stated that limitations upon the sovereignty of states depend 
upon the existence of the primary rules of obligation and these are to be proved, not presumed. But it is obvious that very few activities are expressly prohibited. Accordingly, to consider what is not prohibited is automatically regarded as permissible or lawful in this age and at present times when the reach of sources have internationalized far more reach far, far more extensive uh, than it was in 1920s. Given this reality, it is suggested by a majority of members of the commission, states and scholars that the topic would do well by not focusing on the status of the activity under international law. It is felt desirable instead to focus on the nature of the activity and the risk of harm it entails. There is sufficient experience in national law to deal with wrongful consequence of activities which are otherwise lawful. In the event, Article 1 of the draft articles adopted by the ILC in 2001 referred to, quote-unquote, activities not prohibited by international law, essentially as a mark of demarcation of the topic of prevention from that of the topic of state responsibility, and no more. Duties of prevention of harm are discharged in the main by observing the principle of due diligence. It obliges states to take due care and all necessary measures when engaged in or authorizing any hazardous activity on its territory with a risk of transboundary harm to prevent or at any rate minimize the same. As part of this duty, a state is also expected to ensure that all necessary emergency preparedness is also put in place to respond to harm if it occurs because of human failure and natural catastrophe. According to the Institute de Droit International, a highly respected institution setting standards in international law, the standard of due diligence should be measured in accordance with the objective standards relating to the conduct expected from a good government and detached from subjectivity. While there is little doubt about due diligence being a general principle of international law, its implications for the degree of care expected of a developing country are even more so of least, uh, uh, even more so of a least developed country as opposed to countries which are economically and technologically advanced and developed is a matter of some debate. Several developing country representatives argued that such care may not be the same for all states and is to be some and is to some extent to be conditioned by the stage of their economic development, including scientific knowledge, economic and technological resources available to them. The Commission, in its commentary on the concept of due diligence, incorporated in Article 3 on the principle of prevention dealt with the matter. It did recognize different degrees of economic development among states do affect the degree of care a state is capable of putting in place to discharge its obligations in this regard. For this reason, it noted that it would be necessary, that it would be necessary and advisable in common and mutual interest for states to engage in mutually beneficial schemes in the area of capacity building, transfer of technology, and financial resources. Such efforts are recognized to be in the common interest of all states in developing uniform international standards regulating and implementing the duty of prevention. But that apart, the commentary clearly noted that 
a state's economic level cannot be used to dispense that state from its obligation under the present articles. The main elements of obligation of due diligence as summarized by the commentary to Article 3 on the duty of prevention are worthy of recalling. The degree of care in question is that expected of a good government, it should possess a legal system and sufficient resources to maintain an adequate administrative apparatus to control and monitor the activities. It is however understood that the degree of care expected of a state with a well-developed economy and human and material resources and with highly evolved systems and structures of governance is different from states which are not so well placed. Even in the later case, vigilance, employment, uh, vigilance, employment of infrastructure and monitoring of hazardous activities in the territory of the state, which is a natural attribute of any government, are expected. The required degree of care is proportional to the degree of hazard involved. The degree of harm itself should be foreseeable and the state must know or should have known that the given the activity that the, that the given activity has the risk of significant harm. The higher the degree of inadmissible harm, the greater would be the duty of care required to prevent it. A question which arise, arises immediately is how foreseeable and how well established a risk of harm should be for states to be obliged by the duties of prevention. This is a question which is directly relevant to assess the scope and play of the principles of precaution articulated by Principle 15 of the Rio Declaration. Some members in the Commission felt that the Articles on Prevention adopted in 2001 should have expressly provided for the precautionary principle as an obligation as a matter of progressive development. But the better view which prevailed suggested that it is a policy or approach which is gaining ground in practice and seen as operational in varying degrees and forms depending upon the particular circumstances of the case and the capacity of the state concerned. Accordingly, the commentary to Article 3 notes that this could involve inter alia taking such measures as are appropriately, uh, as, are, as are appropriate by way of abundant caution, even if full scientific certainty does not exist to avoid or prevent serious or irreversible damage and is subject to the capacity of states concerned. Given the importance of the principle of precaution in the context of protection of environment and prevention of transboundary harm, it is appropriate to look more closely at its components and significance both as a policy and as a prescription. The principle of precaution states, as already briefly noted, that where there are threats of serious or irreversible harm, a lack of full scientific certainty about the causes and effects of environmental harm should not be used as a reason for postponing measures to prevent environmental degradation. Implementation of this principle would involve anticipation of environmental harm and taking measures to avoid it or to choose the least environmentally harmful activity. It is based upon the assumption that scientific certainty to the extent it is obtainable with regard to issues of environment and development may be achieved too late to provide effective response to environmental threats. The principle also suggests that where there is an identifiable risk of serious or irreversible environmental harm, including, for example, extinction of species, widespread toxic pollution, 
or major threats to essential ecological processes, it may be appropriate to place the burden of proof on the person or entity proposing the activity that is potentially harmful to the environment. Several components or elements are identifiable as part of policy that the principle or approach of precaution represents. Chief, element, chief elements among these are the environment for its own sake should be an object of protection. Measures of precaution should be based on justified, if not certain, scientific evidence and not merely triggered by concern for a potential danger. Employ region-wide long-term planning and monitoring and encourage product, substitu product substitution or recycling and other eco-friendly technology with appropriate financial incentives. Engage in, in, engage in capacity building of the developing countries with technical training, transfer of technology and financial resources as a measure of common interest. The principle of precaution found place in many regional instruments and referred to in some international agreements. For example, the 1991 Organization of African Unity, the OAU Bamako Convention on the Ban of the Import into Africa and the Control of Transboundary Movement and Management of Hazardous Waste within Africa, particularly Article 4, Paragraph 2F of that particular convention, the 1985 Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer in its preamble are two examples I can think of. The precautionary principle was recommended by the UNEP Governing Council in order to promote the prevention and elimination of marine pollution, which is increasingly becoming a threat to the marine environment and a cause of human suffering. However, the 1990 Bergen Ministerial Declaration on Sustainable Development in the European Economic Commission of Europe region was the first international instrument to treat this principle as one of general application and linked to sustainable development. Since then, the precautionary principle has, been, has become a binding principle of European community environmental law thanks to the incorporation of the same in Article 174 of the EC Treaty. The European Court of Justice dealt with the principle in several of its cases. Even so, according to one commentator, its precise legal implications are not clear. According to the European Court of Justice, a preventive measure cannot be based on purely hypothetical approach to the risks found on a mere conjecture which has not been scientifically verified. Rather, a preventive approach may be taken only if the risk, although the reality and extent thereof have not been fully demonstrated by scientific evidence, appears nevertheless to be adequately backed by the scientific data available at the time. Determination of what level of risk is acceptable is essentially a matter for political decision. In some instances, preventive measures based on the precautionary approach have been suggested without the usual qualifications like serious or irreversible harm or uh, which is the which is the uh, case with Bamako Convention, and in other cases these are linked to the thresholds as noted and to cost-effective measures, like it is the case of United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Article Three, Paragraph Three in particular. Summing up the legal status of the precautionary principle, one commentator characterized it as evolving. 
He further suggested that even though a good argument could be made that the principle which has received sufficient confirmation in various international treaties may be regarded as having acquired the status of a customary principle of international law, the consequences of its application in any potential situation will be influenced by the circumstances of each case. The ICJ spoke of precautionary principles in its decision in the case of the Gafchiko Najimoro's case of 1997 when it referred to the need for vigilance and prevention on account of the often irreversible character of damage to the environment and the limitations, of in, limitations uh, uh, which are inherent in the very mechanisms of reparation of this type of damage. To sum up on this point, the precautionary principle is essentially a good policy to be adopted by states. It is a policy of common sense and should be resorted to as a matter of self-interest. It is however understood that where the benefits of a certain activity according to existing practices far outweigh consequences which are only feared or otherwise suspected, it would be difficult to yield to the demand to the precautionary principle, particularly when few viable alternatives exist to meet the urgent development demand to the population at large, which is predominantly poor. The duty to cooperate, which is an integral part of the principle of prevention, is elaborated in Article 4 of the 2001 ILC Articles on Prevention. Other relevant principles in this regard are the principles of good faith and good neighborliness. The greater reliance on the principle of cooperation is significant in that it marks a departure from the classical approach based on principles of coexistence among states and emphasizes a more positive or even more integrated interaction among them to achieve common ends while charging them with positive obligations of commission. Cooperation could involve both standard setting and institution building as well as action undertaken in a spirit of reasonable consideration of each other's interests and towards achievement of common goals. Accordingly, there are several treaties which incorporate principles of equitable sharing and adopt an integrated approach to the development of shared resources, particularly in the context of a river basin. At the procedural level, cooperation embraces a duty to notify the potentially affected neighboring states and to engage in consultation with such states. The duty to notify would be specific in the case of a planned activity which has a risk of causing significant transboundary harm to other states or areas beyond national jurisdiction. Such a duty of cooperation could also involve regular exchange of data and information as provided in Article 9 of the 1997 Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses. In either case, the duty of the state is to provide such information as is readily available to it. However, states are expected to employ their best efforts to collect and where appropriate to process data and information in a manner which facilitates its utilization by the other states to which it is communicated. The duty of cooperation and the further duty to notify also implies that if any additional information is required by other state, the same shall also be supplied. Where further information is provided to the other concerned states at their request, such service can be rendered in on payment of reasonable costs. Further, in considering the timing of notification and the extent of information to be given, 
it is difficult to define in an abstract manner any kind of standard because of uncertainty about what constitutes relevant harm and also because standards in this regard may vary. Moreover, it is obvious that the duty to notify and provide relevant information to other states concerned is related to national policies, procedures, and law. The International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in its order of 3rd December 2001 in the MOX plant case, that is between Ireland and the United Kingdom, which is case number 10 of the court, referred to the duty of prevention, which it considered as a fundamental principle for the prevention of pollution of the marine environment under part 12 of the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention and under general international law. Accordingly, while imploring the parties to cooperate to cooperate, it prescribed that the exchange information concerning the further consequence of the operation of the MOX plant, monitor the risks or effects of operation of the plant on the Irish Sea, and devise measures to prevent pollution of the Irish Sea. In addition, the general duty to cooperate is also now understood to extend beyond the duty of the state in whose territory the risk-bearing activity is undertaken to third states and even to those states which are actually are likely to be affected. As has been noted, this may indicate that there is some idea of common interest in reducing and mitigating the harm done are likely to be caused further. This common interest is considered to supersede the very logic of liability in cases where liability cannot be established or where the state responsible for the harm is not capable of reducing or mitigating the harm done. Considerations noted above in respect to the duty to consult would also apply in respect to the duty to negotiate which could arise thereafter. For example, Article 17 of the 1997 Convention on the Law of Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses and the Lake Leno Arbitration emphasized the importance of good faith in negotiations. As was pointed out by the International Court of Justice in the North Sea Continental Shelf cases, negotiation to be in conformity with obligation to negotiate should be meaningful, to be a genuine endeavor at bargaining and not a mere affirmation of one's claim without ever contemplating to meet the adversary's claim. But the obligation to consult and negotiation in good faith as appropriate, subject to any treaty arrangements or obligations to otherwise obligations otherwise undertaken does not amount to prior consent from or a right of veto of the states with which consultations are to be held. In other words, the need to negotiate, the need to engage in genuine negotiation does not amount to giving the right to the states being consulted with a right to veto the original proposals or formulations as presented by the state of the origin. This is confirmed by the Commission in its commentary to Article 3 of the Draft Articles on the Law of Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses. According to one author, 
consultation means something more than notification but less than consent. He noted, consultation does not require agreement with the affected states, but it does take into account the state's views and recommendations. We have so far considered some broader issues concerning the general duty of prevention. It is appropriate now to look at some specific, specific obligations the principle of prevention entails or gives rise to. Article 6 sets forth, sets forth the fundamental principle that the prior authorization of a state is required for activities which involve a risk of causing significant transboundary harm undertaken in its territory or otherwise under its jurisdiction or control. The word authorization means granting permission by governmental authorities to conduct an activity covered by these articles. States are free to choose the form of such authorization. This duty is, the duty is extended to all such activities planned presently in place or pre-existing and continuing and any changes made to any of these activities or to, cha or to changes that would transform an activity which is originally normal but turns into, because of these changes, into an activity bearing the risk of a significant harm. It may be recalled that the 2001 ILC articles on prevention are applicable only in respect of activities which have a risk of causing significant transboundary harm. The phrase risk of significant transboundary harm in Article 2A, which defines the term, refers to the combined effect of the probability of occurrence of an accident and the magnitude of its injurious impact. It is therefore the combined effect of risk and harm which sets the threshold, thereby excluding activities with de minimis or negligible or relatively minor harm which the community at any given point in time considers as tolerable. Thus, with time and change of value systems, what is once considered to be not significant, hence tolerable, may become significant and hence attracts regulation or should attract regulation and control in accordance with the law. This requires evaluation of the thresholds every once in a while, depending not only upon factual and objective criteria, but also upon a value determination which depends on the circumstances of a particular case and the period in which such determination is made. The threshold chosen is not as high as substantial or serious or as low as appreciable, but like any of those thresholds, does exclude de minimis harm. The Commission spent considerable amount of time before settling down on the significant harm as the threshold which is now also set for the articles on non-navigational uses of international watercourses, principles of allocation of loss in case of transboundary damage, and articles on utilization of underground waters, which it developed and adopted. The, the articles, as noted in Article 2b, cover harm caused to persons, property, or environment. Coverage of harm to environment is a progressive development which harm to per while harm to persons and property is traditionally well accepted. 
The scope of the articles is limited in one sense, in that the harm covered must have physical consequences, as noted in Article 1, thus connecting the activity to the effect alleged. It specifically excludes harm done to other states by the economic policies of a state. The requirement of strict causal connection is also intended to exclude harm done to global commons, environment in general, or climate change, or depletion of ozone layer, and such other natural resources because of interaction among multiple sources of pollution involving multiplicity of actors. Initially, the work on the topic of liability took considerable time for lack of clear focus on the scope of activities covered. Authorization of an activity with a risk of causing significant transboundary harm would naturally involve a proper risk or transboundary impact assessment, including an environmental impact assessment. This is what is required in Article 7, which is in consonance with Principle 17 of the Rio Declaration. Environmental impact assessment, or what is simply the EIA, is by now a well-established, well-accepted feature of most states while authorizing the risk-bearing activities or as part of the authorization of the risk-bearing activities. It was conducted in the case of the operation of the smelter at Trail in Canada, which involved the risk of transfrontier air pollution. It was, it was first developed as a tool of administration in the USA in the 70s and quickly adopted by Canada and Europe. The requirement of assessment of adverse effects of activities has been incorporated in various forms in many international agreements. The most notable is the 1991 Convention on the Environmental Impact Assessment in a Transboundary Context. According to a UN study, the environmental impact assessment has already shown its value for implementing and strengthening sustainable development as it combines the precautionary principle with the principle of preventing environmental damage and also allows for public participation. Article 7 on EIA does not specify any conditions or terms under which the state of origin is obliged to conduct the EIA. It is understood that any such act study would be required according to the terms of its domestic law in respect of activities, either because of the chemical or other substances involved or the place or proximity of the activity to the adjacent or neighboring state being relevant factors in assessing the possibility of transboundary impact. Some conventions, especially the Convention on Environmental Impact Assessment in a Transboundary Context, in its Article 4, read with Annex 2 of the 1981 study, uh, read with Annex 2 of that convention, or, or the 1981 study of the UNEP expert group dealing with the offshore mining provided for the contents of EIA or indicated the activities by way of examples in respect of which EIA is or may be required. Article 8 and 9 deal with the notification, information and consultation, aspects of which have been covered in some detail already. Article 10 provides for a list of factors with the, which the parties concerned would or should take into consideration while engaging in consultations for arriving at a mutually acceptable solutions 
in designing and operating activities with the risk of causing transboundary impact. One of the important factors to be considered in Article 10D is internalization of costs of pollution harm to primarily provide for the operator the activity to bear the cause of harm, including the transboundary harm. This is essentially an economic principle to encourage the rational use of rational use of scarce resources. It also provides for reducing the effect of inefficiencies and competitive distortions in governmental subsidies. This principle, known as the polluter pays principle, was first initiated by the Council of OECD in 1972. The polluter pays principle was given cognizance at the global level when it was adopted as principle 16 of the Rio Declaration. This principle is specifically referred to in Article 174, ex Article 130 R of the treaty establishing the European Community as amended by the Treaty of Amsterdam. The expression as appropriate in Article 10D indicates that the state of origin and the states likely to be affected are not put on the same level as regards the contribution to the cost of prevention. States concerned frequently embark upon negotiations concerning the distribution of costs for preventive measures. In so doing, they proceed from the basic principle derived from Article 3, according to which these costs are to be assumed by the operator of the state of origin. These negotiations mostly occur in cases where there is no agreement on the amount of the preventive measures and where the affected state contributes to the cost of preventive measures in order to ensure a higher degree of protection that it desires over and above what is essential for the state of origin to ensure. This link between the distribution of costs and the amount of preventive measures is in particular reflected in subparagraph D of Article 10. Article 11 deals with the procedures in the absence of notification by the authorizing state providing a right to the concerned state to seek information from its side. The state of origin would have to prove, provide reasons if it still did not wish to provide information or notification. Any lack of understanding could result in consultation as provided for in Article 9. Article 12 deals with exchange of information while the activity is on. Article 13 provides for information to the public. Public includes individuals, interest groups, non-governmental organizations, independent experts. General public also, however, refers to individuals who are not organized into groups or affiliated into specific sections or lobbies or interest groups. Public participation could be encouraged by, the, by holding public meetings or hearings. The public should be given the opportunity for consultation and their participation should be facilitated by providing them with necessary information on the proposed policy, plan or program under consideration. Given the development of human rights law, public participation could also be viewed as a growing right under national law as well as international law. Article 14 deals with the right of the state to withhold information on account of national security, protection of industrial secrets or intellectual property rights. But even so, it is required, the state of origin is required to provide as much information as possible consistent with these considerations. 
Article 15 deals with the principle of non-discrimination, a principle originally provided for in Article 32 of the 1997 Law of Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses. Article 15 contains two basic elements, namely non-discrimination on the basis of nationality or residence and non-discrimination on the basis of the place of injury or the place where the injury might occur. The rule set forth obliges, the rule thus set forth obliges states to ensure that any person whatever his nationality or place of residence who might suffer significant transboundary harm as a result of the activities referred to in Article 1 should, regardless of where the harm might occur, receive the same treatment as that afforded by the state of origin to its nationals in case of possible harm on, at the domestic level. It is not intended that this obligation should affect the existing practice in some states of requiring that non-residents or aliens post a bond as a condition of utilizing the court system to cover court costs or other fees. Such practice is not discriminatory under the article and is taken into account by the phrase in accordance with the legal system. Article 15 also provides that the state of origin may not discriminate on the basis of the place where the damage might occur. The principle of non-discrimination as provided is residual and is subject to such other, such other arrangements states may otherwise agree upon for the protection of the persons exposed to transboundary harm. Article 17 and emergency preparedness refers to anticipatory measures like establishment of contingency plans and joint monitoring mechanisms in addition to the emergency drills, alarm signals, maintenance of rescue and response equipment, establishment of standards to locate and maintain facilities, estab and operation, the, the risk-bearing operations, establishment of contact points, training, rescue relief managers, rather than responsive action itself, which comes once damage occurs. Article 28, paragraph 4 of the Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Use of International Water Courses and Article 199 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea for, for provide for similar emergency preparedness. The importance of the emergency preparedness is well illustrated by the lack of such arrangements in the case of Bhopal, that is in India, gas tragedy. Similar, similarly, the significance of early notification of an emergency arising out of hazardous activities to which Article 17 refers to cannot also be overemphasized. It was a matter that greatly agitated states following the Chernobyl accident. The IAEA Convention on Early Notification of a Nuclear Accident and in particular Article 5, dealing with the details of information to be notified is a response to address the concerns of, concerns of states in this regard. Both the Article 16 and 17, Article 16 and 17, both the articles are drawn on lines similar to corresponding provisions incorporated in Article 28, Paragraph 2 of the UN Convention on the Law of Non-Navigational Uses. 
Article 19 is an important provision on dispute avoidance and dispute resolution. There was much debate in the Commission about what type of provision should be put in place in the context of data articles on prevention. While some preferred a full-blown compulsory settlement of disputes, others argued for a minimal provision leaving it to states to choose the means of settlements of disputes of their choice. As a compromise, the Commission agreed first for a compulsory fact-finding commission to deal with disagreements or disputes concerning facts. The report to the fact-finding is facilitative of the resolution of the dispute, but not binding on the parties. As for the actual resolution of the dispute, Article 19 leaves it to states to choose from a wide variety of means noted in Article 33 of the UN Charter. These are negotiations, good offices, mediation, arbitration, and, of course, judicial settlement. Thus, if the parties to the dispute are unable to settle a dispute within six months by peaceful means of their choice, they shall, at the request of any of them, have recourse to the establishment of an impartial fact-finding commission. An interesting point to consider is the kind of, the kind of remedies available to the aggrieved party in case of failure to observe duties of prevention, which are essentially procedural. In case of harm accompanying such failure, it will be an aggravating factor in the consideration of appropriate compensation along with such other consequences the wrongful act entails. Even in the absence of harm, failure to discharge duties of prevention gives rise to responsibility of the state if these are duties of state such as the requirement of conducting EIA as a basis for authorization. Notification to states likely to be affected. Engaging in consultations or negotiations, negotiations in designing and setting up of suitable monitoring mechanisms. Reviewing the needed safety measures. Reviewing the needed safety measures. The aggrieved party could seek necessary injunctions or orders by following applicable or agreed measures of dispute settlement if negotiations do not result in necessary satisfaction. If the failure is on the part of the operator, the authorization given could either be suspended or even revoked if authorization is already given. The point to stress is procedural obligations are as important and will have their appropriate consequences as the substantive obligations are. We should conclude this lecture with a case study. The pulp mills on the river Uruguay, a case between Argentina and Uruguay, before the International Court of Justice in respect of which the ICJ delivered its decision on 20th April 2010, or that is 2010, is a case which has, which discussed all the principles we have referred to in our lecture so far. Argentina filed the case before the ICJ on 4th May 2006 against Uruguay in respect of a dispute concerning the breach allegedly committed by Uruguay of obligations under the statute of the river Uruguay. The statute of Uruguay is a treaty signed by Argentina and Uruguay on 26 February 1975. It is in force since 18 September 1976. 
Article 7 of the statute provides for the establishment by parties of a regime for the use of the river covering various subjects. These included the conservation of living resources and the prevention of water pollution of the river, Uruguay. For the purpose of implementation of this regime, the parties also established a joint administrative commission of the river Uruguay called CARU CARU. Argentina contended that Uruguay failed to observe its obligations under the 1975 statute in connection with the authorization it gave for the construction of two pulp mills with reference in particular to the effects of such activities on the quality of the waters of the river Uruguay and on the areas affected by the river. The court held that Uruguay failed in its obligations which, are, which were required under the statute, that is the requirement of notification of the planned activity to the Joint Commission and to Argentina. In this connection, the court noted that obligations of due diligence which formed the basis of principle of prevention were breached by Uruguay. Noting the principle of prevention, noting that the principle of prevention is a principle of customary international law and that it is now part of the corpus of international law, the court emphasized the importance of the duties of notification, consultation and negotiation and the broad duty of, duty of cooperation between the parties in the context of a shared resource like the river of Uruguay in discharge of the obligations of prevention. Further, the court by citing its observation in the case concerning certain questions of mutual assistance in criminal matters uh, be between Djibouti and France considered that information on the plans for the mills that reached Karu via the companies concerned or from other non-governmental sources cannot substitute for Uruguay's obligation to inform as provided under Article 7, Paragraph 1 of the 1975 Statute. As part of its dictum, the court emphasized that there is a link between procedural and substantive obligations. Nevertheless, breach of either procedural or substantive obligations would give rise to state responsibility on its own. In this particular case, the court found, however, that there were no breaches on account of Uruguay's substantive obligations. Argentina requested the court to require Uruguay to suspend the work on the pulp mills because of its failure to observe procedural obligations. The court noted in this connection that while negotiations between the parties were continuing to satisfy each other on the compliance of procedural obligations, Uruguay indeed had an obligation to discontinue work on the project. But once the parties determined that negotiations failed without any agreement, the court noted Uruguay was no longer under that obligation and was entitled to resume work on the planned activity at its own risk on the project. At its own risk, despite lack of any consent from Argentina. The court pointed out that the finding that Uruguay failed in the observance of its procedural obligations under the 75 statute was sufficient by way of satisfaction to Argentina. It thereby rejected an additional request by Argentina to examine the act of authorization by Uruguay to see whether it was proper. It noted that the 1975 statute only gave the court the authority to interpret and apply its provisions and not to examine the act of authorization itself. On other matters of importance, the court noted that while precautionary approach may be relevant 
in the interpretation and application of the provisions of the statute, it does not follow that it operates as a reversal of the burden of proof. At on another point, it noted that in accordance with the principles, in accordance with the well-established principles, it is the duty of the party which asserts certain facts to establish the existence of such facts. The obligation to preserve the aquatic environment and in particular to prevent pollution by prescribing appropriate rules and measures is an obligation to act with due diligence in respect of all activities which take place under the jurisdiction and control of each party. It also entails the duty to observe a certain level of vigilance in the, enforce, in the enforcement of such obligation. The responsibility of a party to the 1975 statute would therefore be engaged if it was shown, if it were shown that, no, if it was shown that, uh, that it had failed to act diligently. Undertaking an environmental impact assessment is a requirement under general international law in cases of all industrial activities that pose a significant adverse impact in a transboundary context, in particular with respect to shared resources like the river Uruguay. However, the content of such EIA is left to the determination of the state, but it may relate, but, such, but, but the content of the EIA may relate to nature and magnitude of the proposed activity and its likely adverse impact on the environment as well as on the need to exercise due diligence in conducting such an assessment. EIA must be conducted prior to the authorization of the project. Moreover, once operations have started throughout the life of the project, continuous monitoring of its effects on the environment should be undertaken. The pulp mills case of 2010 thus endorsed and applied in full the various obligations detailed under articles on the regime of prevention along with commentaries adopted by the ILC in 2001 to the circumstances of the particular case of the pulp, pulp mills. Its value lies in establishing the duties of prevention and in particular the duty of due diligence and the need to take all appropriate measures to prevent significant transboundary harm as an obligation under customary international law. This decision thus reinforces the widely held opinion in scholarly circles that work of the Commission concluded in 2001 is essentially in the nature of codification of customary international law. I thank you for your attention.